Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. I'm excited to have Shu Niyata, who's a managing partner at SoftBank, co-leading SoftBank's new $5 billion America, a Latin America-focused technology growth fund and SoftBank's $100 million opportunity fund. Uh, before this role, Shu was a founding member of SoftBank Group's Silicon Valley investment team and the Silicon uh, and the SoftBank Vision Fund. He's made investments spanning a variety of uh, sectors, including fintech, mobility, hospitality, and others uh, in the US, Europe, India, China, and Latin America. Prior to joining SoftBank, uh, Shu was an investment banker with JP Morgan consultant with McKinsey uh, and a singer and songwriter. Uh, Shu received his uh, bachelor's from Harvard College and MSc from Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Welcome to the show, Shu. Thank you. Thank you, Rohit. Awesome. So, uh, you know, you, you have a very interesting uh, journey. Um, how did you, you know, make your way from, from McKinsey and JP Morgan and then, uh, you know, how did you get into investing? I have to go further back than that, Rohit. So yeah. the question is, how did I make my way from Nairobi to yeah. uh, Silicon Valley? And it's, re- it's a related question. I, I was always trying to hit the target. So growing up in Kenya, I'm sure it's similar to growing up in India, where parents care about school and they send you to school and they're like, how are you going to get into IIT? You know, like that's yeah. the, whole, the whole orientation. So growing up, it was hit the target, hit the target, hit the target. And uh, in Kenya, when I was growing up, the universities were not amazing. And so hitting the target for university meant going to the U.S. And so I was always thinking, how am I going to get to the U.S.? And that's what catapulted me out of Africa and all the way to to Harvard, to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is like a completely different place uh, from Nairobi. It's so different in so many ways. But then curiosity started to take over because at some point you realize there are no targets to hit. It's just life. Now you have to live life. And that's a different mentality. So I was exploring many, many things. I explored consulting. I explored uh, uh, entrepreneurship to some extent in the Middle East, where I helped build a business in Saudi Arabia. I explored being a musician. I explored grad school. I explored finance. It was all of this, the tasting menu. I was just exploring everything I could explore to understand what I actually cared about instead of just hitting the target because hitting the target had lost meaning. And finally, it took a long time, but I I realized that the thing that just kept giving me energy was this universe of tech and founders and startups and all of that stuff, which I didn't know a lot about. And I decided then I have to be in San Francisco. And that's the decision that many, many years later led me to SoftBank. It was coming to the place where this thing was happening that I realized I cared about and being in the ecosystem and drinking the water and meeting the people. Um, And so I spent some time doing investment banking in San Francisco with JP Morgan, which was actually fun. Believe it or not, investment banking can be fun. And I met um, this guy, Nikesh Arora, who had just left Google to help launch the investment team for SoftBank in Silicon Valley. And it was just Nikesh really. And like a couple of people he came with from Google and he liked the fact that I had this random background of tasting menu. He thought that's exactly what we need here because we're not really sure what we're going to do. Do you want to jump on this crazy roller coaster and see where it goes? And I said, yes. 
And that's how I got involved with SoftBank. And the rest has been many different adventures inside of SoftBank because Nikesh left and then someone new came in and then I was at the Vision Fund and I left the Vision Fund. So even within SoftBank, I'd say it's been a tasting menu of SoftBank, but all around the theme of entrepreneurship and tech, which is, which is what I really want to devote my career and my life to. Right. I think I think it's it's very interesting because you know before the call we were talking about OYO rooms and uh, you know your your first investment there uh, from SoftBank and um, you you know you've been an operator and uh, you've been an entrepreneur uh, and then you became an investor. Is is it a natural flow uh, for you to get into investing or was it uh, was it something uh, you know you you, uh, you thought about you know doing something of your own and then you know, you got into investing. So the, the only way in which I've really been an entrepreneur was when I was a musician, because you're, it's a small business yeah. and you have to think about, you're basically the CEO of your own little music business. But other than that, I hadn't, I, I wouldn't say it's fair to call me an operator. I've, I've done a few roles that have been in businesses, but I haven't really been an operator, but consistently I've always been curious and to me, that's the thing about investing that is the best match. There's a great book called Range uh, by Daniel Epstein. I think it's Daniel Epstein, where he talks about this concept of match quality, that what you're looking for in life is match quality. That how good is the match between you and your skills and your interests and the job that you have? And after a lot of wandering, the match quality between curiosity and investing is very, very high. And I'm a very curious person. And so when I found this job of tech investing, it was in love at first sight. And then I started to learn the craft. But the initial impetus, which is around curiosity, has always still been there. So I would say in that sense, the, the job is a good match for my personality. But the specific tools and skills, especially for growth investing, you really have to learn on the job. There's no substitute for that. And, um, you know, uh, since, since you're part of Opportunity Fund and the Latin Fund, uh, you know, uh, what, what is the thesis behind the fund? Um, is it, uh, you know, uh, uh, are you stage and sector agnostic? So there are two different things, and I'll explain each one. So we have the SoftBank Latin America Fund. The SoftBank Latin America Fund was an experiment. SoftBank had not really invested in Latin America in a meaningful way. The, the most investments were U.S. and China and India, which makes sense. And then Southeast Asia started to creep up. And we saw this gap in Latin America. And my boss, Marcelo Claure, who works for Masa, uh, said, and he's Bolivian, right? He said, I'm from Latin America. I've been sitting with Masa in Tokyo. I see all these entrepreneurs from the US and China and India, and I see no Latino entrepreneurs. What's going on? It's a big market. They're educated people. It has high per capita GDP, actually, twice as high as Southeast Asia. But no startups, that can't be true. So we started this experiment of what if we just launch a fund dedicated to Latin America? What will happen? Are there enough companies? Will we be successful? And what we found, which is almost always true, is if you scratch a little bit, there's a bunch of stuff under the surface anywhere. And so two and a half years later, we've realized there's an explosion of entrepreneurship happening in Latin America. The fund is completely validated. We're going to launch another one focused on Latin America, all of that strategy worked out. The Opportunity Fund is a very different fund with a very similar idea. So the Opportunity Fund is focused on the US, it's focused on racially underrepresented founders. Unfortunately, Indians don't qualify because they basically run Silicon Valley. 
So the racially underrepresented founders are Black, Latino, and Native American in the U.S. And we said, what if we just focused on those founders? What would happen? And unlike LATAM, there the need is at the early stage. So LATAM is predominantly a growth stage fund, 20, 30, 50, 100, 200 million dollar checks. The opportunity fund, and it's a $5 billion fund, so you have to write that size checks. The opportunity fund is a $100 million fund, much smaller, because the need in the market is at the early stage. And so we write 100K to $5 million checks, maximum, you know, that kind of range to help boost this early entrepreneurial ecosystem, to help some of these founders who don't have the typical access to capital. And just like for LATM, when we scratched, there was stuff there. For the Opportunity Fund, we scratched and there was a lot of stuff there. People say there's, there's a pipeline problem. You won't find the companies to invest in. They said that for LATAM. They said that for Opportunity Fund. Both are completely false. There are all kinds of entrepreneurs doing all kinds of interesting things. You just have to show up, tell them you're open for business, and have faith in them, basically. Believe in them. That's what a good founder wants. Okay, got it. Yeah, I think it's it's very important that you know, uh, SoftBank is is you know taking an initiative, especially with the Opportunity Fund and and the and Latin Fund. And uh, uh, you know, uh, as you pointed out about Latin America, uh, you've had some really big companies, especially in the fintech space like Brex, uh, New Bank. Uh, you know, what do you think are the major trends in fintech space in in Latin America right now? Fintech is a big theme. And it's not that there are no banks in LATAM. There are banks. They're very profitable, amazing banks in LATAM. They make a lot of money, but they serve the top of the pyramid. And there are very few of them. So they're very oligopolistic. They over-earn, as we say in the investing world, they're earning more than they should in the long run because there's no real competition. And the vast majority of the population is either underserved or unserved completely. So for startups which come into this whole space with much lower cost to serve. They don't have to support branches. They don't have to support mid-level executives with big salaries. They don't have to support expensive real estate in the most fancy building in the middle of Sao Paulo. None of that. You just come with some software. Suddenly, you can offer products to the middle and the bottom of the pyramid very cost-effectively in a way that makes you money. And because of how underserved those populations are, they're hungry for a new product. So the biggest opportunity in fintech and LATAM has just been including more people in financial services. Simple as that. I'm sure that's true in India. I'm sure that'll be true in Africa. I'm sure that's true in Southeast Asia. And as a result of that, you've been able to build very big companies because these people who are underserved are thirsty for these products. So there are multiple, there will be multiple and there are multiple multi-billion dollar uh, fintech companies that will come out of LATAM. And, uh, you know, Latin America has, has the world's largest crypto users. Uh, you know, are there, uh, 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 are there a lot of regulations for, for cryptocurrency? Because, uh, you know, India did have uh, those regulations for, for cryptocurrency. Uh, uh, you know, are, are you aware about uh, such regulations when it comes to uh, financial companies and cryptocurrency? So, LATAM is multiple markets. And... Brazil is the biggest, Mexico is the next, and then there's quite a gap before you get to Colombia and Argentina and Venezuela. Crypto usage is probably disproportionately high in the more broken economies, not the biggest economies. So 
Argentina, Venezuela probably both have a lot of crypto users because their economies don't really work that well. Venezuela's is a real problem. Argentina's has been perpetually challenged. I don't know why, but it seems to go through all of these crazy cycles of boom and bust. And so you cannot trust the monetary system. You cannot trust the fiat currency of those markets. And Bitcoin in particular, not just crypto, but Bitcoin offers this very interesting alternative. But in general, the theme I said earlier about underserved markets, crypto, all the various products that have come out of crypto and DeFi are very interesting for markets that are underserved by traditional financial institutions. Because just like cell phones in India or Africa skipped landlines, you may get crypto skipping credit cards or skipping regular money remittance. You just go straight to the cell phone. And that's a little bit of what we're seeing. So the, the, brand, the first financial product that a young person in Argentina might use digitally might be Bitcoin, which is a really interesting idea. And in general, Brazil at least has been very friendly uh, towards crypto regulation and very clear. It hasn't been anti-crypto in the way that China and even India have been. So it's yeah. been much more forward thinking on that front. So I think you will get really interesting adoption in Brazil and Mexico and Argentina and Colombia and all these markets for all the reasons I mentioned. Correct. And, uh, you, you know, when it comes to uh, SoftBank, I, I, I want to know what is, uh, how do you look at portfolio construction? Uh, because, you know, uh, SoftBank uh, does invest uh, large amounts of money across different geographies. But uh, what is, uh, how, how do you look at, you know, portfolio construction and uh, what is the right level of diversification for SoftBank? So there's the, there's the academically acceptable answer, which is you want to balance your risk and you pick some US and China and that's where the most innovation is, but don't go too overweight on China because of regulatory risk. And yet that's the academically acceptable answer. The realistic answer is we don't really think that way. We just try to find great entrepreneurs because unlike some of these other asset classes like fixed income, or public equities. What you're investing in isn't a static thing. It is a highly dynamic thing called an entrepreneur and a team. And what's special about these people is they figure things out that are very surprising that you cannot predict, the best ones. And they create this outsized value as a result. So if you said, I'm only going to allocate X percent to Indian founders, I've reached my cap, now let's go look for it. You probably will miss some amazing guy from Gurgaon who's building, I don't know what, that's going to take over the world. So we try not to overthink this portfolio construction question. It's much more, let's find exceptional founders. And in general, you have a lot of those in the US, you have a lot of those in China, but then you also have a lot of them in India, a lot of them in Latam, fewer so the portfolio will kind of mirror those markets at a GDP level, but you'll still find outstanding people in those places. And that's our true north, is we're the exceptional founders, not what's the right portfolio construction. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan. 
which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Correct. And, and uh, how, uh, you know, how does uh, SoftBank look at, in, you know, internal investment decision making? Uh, do, you have, do you have large teams which, uh, uh, which, which evaluate startups uh, across different geographies? Uh, uh, what is the, uh, you know, investment decision making when it comes to uh, making quick decisions? Yeah, so it, it, it's evolved over time. And I'd say when I started, it was extremely fluid where there were you know, fewer than 10 people making investments for SoftBank globally. And it was a very informal set of processes. It became much more institutionalized in the Vision Fund, which is a global world-class asset management institution with offices on multiple continents. You know? So that is a very well-oiled machine. But then you have something like the Latin America Fund, which is a much smaller team again, and is much more fluid and informal. So it depends on where in SoftBank. I can talk about the Latin America Fund because that's where I spend my days. And there, the way we try to make decisions is a balance between rigor and flexibility. So you want to make sure that you understand some of the main points of a company, especially because we make mostly growth stage investments. So there's a lot to analyze, but you can't analyze everything. So we try to pick the two or three things that really, really matter, and then quickly come to a view on those things and make a decision. And that could take anywhere from a week to a month, you know, roughly speaking, depending on the company, depending on the competitive dynamics. If a round is hot, sometimes you have to just make a decision quickly uh, or decide not to participate, which is also a decision. And, and often that can be the most costly decision. Uh, the mistakes of omission are much more expensive in venture than mistakes of commission. So in general, the bias should be to say yes. That is the winning strategy in venture. To say no all the time means you'll miss the biggest things. To say yes all the time means you'll get the biggest things and that'll probably pay for everything else. So it's a weird business in that way, but you still wanna not make big mistakes and, and waste money. So we try to balance that. It's become much more difficult in the last year because the market is a lot more competitive suddenly in Latin America because everybody's realized they're interesting companies and it's a big market opportunity. So we're always calibrating on that point. It's not easy. And, and uh, you know, how do you look at uh, and how do you approach uh, reserve allocation given that, you know, the top bank comes uh, into the later stage for uh, in, in companies? Uh, do, you, do, you, do you allocate... Uh, uh, reserves for reserve investing for for those startups they have that you have already invested. We're lucky because we have a lot of capital. So and because we invest at the growth stage, so it's actually not a big topic. We will once in a while think about the cumulative capital needs of a business, but in general, because of the size of capital that we have available at SoftBank, we don't have to wonder whether we will have it or whether someone else will be able to provide it. That's a luxury that we have that other funds don't. So. We think about cumulative capital, but we don't explicitly reserve because we don't need to given the stage we're investing at and given the, the amount of capital that we have. And, and um, you know, in, in India alone, I, I think I've seen uh, the few SoftBank uh, backed startups, uh, which is, uh, you know, still not had an, uh, had an exit or an IPO. And with a lot of companies, you know, they're remaining private, 
uh, you know how does uh, how do you how do you look at uh, liquidity for these startups uh, going forward exits matter even if people don't sell even if all the investors hold on even if all the employees hold on liquidity events ipos matter because they prove that you can make money and it's not just a private secondary transaction so Latin America actually in this sense is better than India. You have multiple listed Nasdaq listed Latam tech companies. Okay. Mercado Libre, Stone, PagSeguro, Banco Inter, which is one of our investments, LocaWeb, Globant. I mean all of these are XP. These are all like many billions of dollars of market cap each. And the advantage that it has is it shows future entrepreneurs you can get there. Number 1, number 2 it recycles money back into the ecosystem because those executives want to invest in other tech companies because they know it's possible they just did it. And third, very importantly, it proves to employees and to local capital that you can make money in venture, which is often a really big cultural shift in these markets. Is if you're some wealthy family office you'll say no, I'm going to buy that building. because i can see the building okay. and it's going to earn me yield and i i know where it is <laughs> i'm not going to invest in venture i'll never make money so the more you prove that that's not true that the wheel turns that the capital will come back it just jump starts the whole ecosystem because then you get people doing what are called friends and family rounds which is the ingredient in silicon valley that is freely available you go knock on a door and money comes out and they say go start your company that is not available in most of these other ecosystems but it will be more available once people see that money comes the, out the other side and a lot more money comes out the other side so exits ipos are really really important for an ecosystem now why hasn't it happened in india more i don't know but i think it will there's enough capital that's gone in you have a few really prominent examples of course you had the early wave you know the make my trip wave way back when but but now you also have this new wave the flipkart wave and you'll have subsequent waves there's no question in my mind you'll get very valuable uh, exits in india so i think it's more a matter of when not whether but then i think uh, zomato is also coming up uh, with an ipo hopefully uh, that's going to be a, a big win for the uh, indian tech ecosystem but uh, uh, what are, what are your thoughts on secondary sales for uh for founders and employees uh, do you think you know they should uh be given the option to have a secondary uh sale it depends all these answers are so nuanced if a founder has been i'll give an extreme example if a founder has been running a company taking almost no salary for 5 years an ipo is not imminent and they're raising around and they just had a kid is it okay for them to sell some shares to buy a house and put some money in savings so they can de-stress their lives a little bit absolutely it's a good idea because they'll be more present in the business less stressed make more long-term decisions instead of just short-term money making decisions and you will get a better outcome as an investor and that's true for all employees right if a company just raised their series a and there's so much investor interest that they say you know what i'm going to sell half my shares that's not okay and in between there is where the debates happen so i think some secondary 
once in a while is a very healthy thing. And companies should feel that they can organize that step by step so that they just take some steam uh, out of the system. But a disproportionate secondary sale by any senior employee, especially in a company early in its life is a very negative signal. And, uh, you know, 2020 had been an inflection point where, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, money has been deployed into uh, into companies. Uh, you know, how, how do you analyze uh, burn and, you know, capital efficiency uh, during these times? It depends on the size of the prize and the risk appetite of the investor. So the key thing isn't so much burn, it's unit economics. And this is not news to any of your listeners, I'm sure. You want to sell a dollar for more than a dollar. Maybe there's some period when you're educating a market where you're selling a dollar for less than a dollar. But even Amazon, which was always criticized for not being profitable, had positive gross margins very, very early in the company's life cycle. All they did was they fully invested those gross margins into building the rest of the business. And so you don't get EBITDA, you don't get net income, and that's okay. And so you could end up with really high burn, but that's okay. Bad high burn is where you have negative contribution margins, where you have cohorts that are churning, so customers that don't stick around. And so basically, you just have a bucket with a hole in the bottom. That's bad burn. Good burn is you have a big bucket and you're making it bigger and there's no hole in the bottom and you're just putting more and more capital inside it. I'll give you an example. Robinhood uh, has spent a lot of money. They've raised a lot of money. They've spent a lot of money. Their churn is negligible. It's like very, very, very low. What that means is, if Robinhood acquires a new user, that new user will stay with them probably for the rest of their lives as an investor, probably. Or a large number of users will do that. If that is true, if that's even half true, they should spend as much as they possibly can to acquire new users. Because the lifetime value of that cohort is incredibly high and they should drive their burn up as much as possible. If Robinhood was acquiring 10 users and nine of them churn after a month, even with the same amount of burn, that is very bad burn. So it's all very context specific. And obviously it depends on how much your founder can raise. Some founders are very, very good at raising money. Right. Correct. And, uh, and you talked about, you know, you know uh, uh, unit economics, uh, you know, what is the, uh, what is the proper attribution to look at? Do you think it's, uh, you know, CAC to LTP ratio of three to one is, is the right way to, to assess, you know, uh, the right uh, CAC to LTP ratio? There, there are rules of thumb for all of this stuff, but the devil is so much in the detail because what is CAC and what is not CAC? Is the employee that you're using for customer success to make sure someone sticks it around part of CAC or not? And then what is LTV and how do you measure it and over what period of time and how predictable is that? It is very squishy. I would say in general, you, you want a properly calculated, conservatively calculated LTV to CAC ratio to be north of three and four in order to take that question off the table and focus on other things. 
If it's below those numbers, then you have very little margin for error. It means if your CAC spikes, suddenly you're selling a dollar for less than a dollar. And you don't have as much room to keep growing the business in a healthy way. If it's high, it's showing that there's product market fit and there's a way to keep growing profitably into that market, even by spending more. So it's, it's more, those are the dimensions that the LTV CAC ratio articulates as opposed to it being this fixed number that is a rule of some sort that you have to try and hit. It's a, a rough measure for, is this a healthy, good business that has good product market fit and room to invest? That's really what it's telling you. And, uh, you know, what advice would you give to founders who are looking at uh, approaching the, the talent market uh, during these times since, you know, uh, you know, people are working remotely, most companies are working remotely, and, uh, you know, it's become more, more and more competitive to, uh, you know, get uh, the right talent. It's become more competitive and it's become harder to, to keep people engaged. Right. I think purpose is one of the most important things a company can have. And I don't just mean some silly mission that's not real, you know, like we have a mission, our mission is to do X. Every company can come up with that, but really having a purpose that is authentic, that drives the founder and the founding team, that drives why the company exists is increasingly gonna be the winner more than comp. I see in my own kids, they care more about certain things than I ever did. I think this is a general thing happening around the world. People care more about more than just money. And startups are these wonderful things where you can combine capitalism with purpose without really a trade-off. Just focus on building the right kind of company, serving the right kind of group. And so in the war for talent and in the war to keep talent engaged once they're with you, I think the most powerful tool is purpose, but authentic purpose. And so as a founder who's thinking about a new company or as a company that is doing stuff, I think meditating on what should be our purpose and how do we use that to galvanize our community is a very, very important thing to do. Probably the most important thing to do. Today, I have an interesting stat for you. Did you know that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. And, and, and you, you know, you have uh, worked across geographies and across uh, industry. You, you're part of uh, the Latin Fund, the Opportunity Fund, uh, and, and the Miami Initiative. Now, how, do you, uh, how do you process uh, and how does your work schedule work like uh, since you're handling, you know, different, uh, different uh, work schedules and, uh, and working across different geographies? So I don't know because I've only ever done this during COVID. My life was much simpler before COVID because all we were doing was building the Latin America Fund. All these other things came up during COVID. And the advantage of COVID and working from home is you can do a thousand things in a day without leaving this chair. I just push a button. I'm in a different meeting. I'm in a different city. I'm in a different place. So it's actually boosted productivity big time. Obviously, this is no news to anyone. Everyone's experienced this. But that's what's enabled this multi-threading that I and a lot of other people have been able to do in the last year. What that looks like post-COVID, 
with planes and transition time and all this stuff is a huge question mark that I'm going to need to figure out uh, in the next 12 months. Correct. And, uh, uh, you know, a uh, uh, lo- lot of big companies were coming out of uh, startup ecosystems like Silicon Valley, uh, New York, London, Bangalore. But, but do you think uh, unicorns can come out of uh, out of places which are which are not uh, big startup ecosystems and uh, can remote companies, uh, fully remote companies from scratch, uh, be be unicorns? There's no logical reason why not. You can assemble people to attack any problem more easily than ever. Right. You can attract capital to that idea more easily than ever. There is much less friction in selling and propagating that business into the world than ever. So I would argue we're entering the golden age of creating unicorns everywhere in every form because all the things have gotten easier to do, basically, for a tech-native company. So I'd imagine that question will seem silly in three years. Got it. And uh, should I quickly want to do the top three? What's your favorite business book? Favorite business book. I'll give the most recent favorite, which is The Innovation Stack by uh, Jim McElvey. He was a co-founder of Square. It's great because it explains why businesses that look simple on the outside in very competitive markets can actually be defensible, like Square, which is just an acquirer for SMEs, or Southwest, which is just an airline, or IKEA, which is just a furniture seller why each of those three businesses is actually very, very defensible. And he introduces this notion of the innovation stack, which is very powerful. So I recommend that one highly. And he's also a brilliant and fun guy to read. So that's my favorite business book right now. All right, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you started working with SoftBank, uh, what is the one thing you would have uh, focused on or done anything differently? I think... I would have taken more risk. When you look back on the last seven years, I've been in SoftBank seven years, of value creation in tech, really, we should have just said yes to everything. It's been incredible. And the things we missed because, oh, this seems expensive, were the biggest mistakes, not the things we did that went to zero. Like those were not, because then you would just lose how much you invested. Okay. And the rest, you multiply that capital significantly. So I think there's been such a shift in the economy that we should have just taken a lot more risk in 2014, 2015. That's, uh, that's a very interesting insight. And uh, do you have any favorite online tool that sample Gmail Slack soon? Favorite online tool? Um, it would have to be WhatsApp because... I use WhatsApp for work. I use WhatsApp personally. I use WhatsApp to communicate with founders. I use WhatsApp to make introductions. And it always ends up being the easiest one to use because it's just simple. So I think it is an incredibly valuable platform and probably the thing I use the most every day. Got it. And I've got another one for you. Uh, you know, since you've been part of SoftBank, what... Uh, how's been your experience working with uh, Masa and, you know, any, any learnings for, from Masa which you can share to the listeners? Yeah, so many. It's a whole other podcast. <laughs> I, I'll give my 
a couple of my favorites. So Masa is brilliant at many things, but one of the things he's brilliant at is simplifying the world. And he will boil something down into the core components very insightfully and very simply. And that's actually what matters to drive a particular decision. Alibaba was obvious in retrospect. All these Chinese people coming online, they will need to shop online. They will want a local platform that does it all. Don't worry about profit. Just make sure you bring everybody online, Jack, and the rest will take care of itself. And it sounds very simple and kind of, you know, like a folk tale, but that is the right thing to focus on as Alibaba. And he does that over and over again, in every industry of his situation. So that's one thing, simplification genius. The other one is he's a long-term thinking genius. My favorite Masa quote, favorite is he says, and he used to come and just, you know, talk to us in a room. There were like six people in a room. He sits on a chair before everything got so huge. And he would say, most of the world, we're on the boat. Everyone's in a boat. And most of the world is looking at the waves. Some smart people are looking maybe three waves out. But most people are looking at the waves. I spend my time looking at the shore because that's how you make sure you keep going in the right direction. So he ignores all of this noise around, even if it's like a little far away, just ignores it and focuses on where am I going ultimately? And that consistency is extremely rare. That long-term thinking is extremely rare. No, I think these are very uh, insightful, uh, you know, anecdotes you talked about. I'm sure, you know, listeners are going to, uh, uh, you know, enjoy and learn from it. Uh, so what, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about SoftBank? The, the easiest way for me is Twitter. Uh, I think it's actually a great way to combine many different spheres. And so uh, that's how I like to communicate with people is on Twitter. Got it. We'll put that on the shows. Uh, Shul, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you, Rohit. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.